right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, my guest today is Sebastian Malaby. You, you may have heard of him already. He's a really well-known journalist in the finance and economic space. But the reason that we wanted to have him on is he just wrote a great new book called The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. So Sebastian, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Bradley. So you've written, I think, six books already. So it's not like you're new to this process. But but given that you have, I imagine, at this point, the ability to write about whatever you want, and your publisher will will, will take it. Um, what made you choose, you know, venture capital and Silicon Valley for this book? A couple of things. Uh, the first is simply that you know, technology investing has got to be the most exciting area of finance right now. I think to understand a big venture capital leader like Sequoia is the equivalent of understanding like Goldman Sachs in the year 1995 or 2000, right? I, I mean, hope it, someone from Goldman is listening just because that will make them so angry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but what I'm saying is that, you know, at different points in history, there are different types of finance that really dominate the way capitalism is working. And uh, today it's venture capital. And the reason is that intangible assets, not stuff you can drop on your foot, but, you know, intellectual property, ideas, new business processes, uh, you know, patents, all that innovation stuff is where the action is. You can see that in the stock market. You can see that in how we've survived the pandemic lockdown. And so how you invest in that stuff uh, becomes super interesting. And I think that hands-on investors who get close to the company, which is what VCs at least traditionally have done, is kind of how you have to invest in intangibles. You can't do it by just reading the numbers on the financial statements because it might say we've invested 20 million in a, in a software development project. Is the project any good? Is it no good? Is it useless? Whatever. You only know that if you're sufficiently close to the company to actually have an opinion about that, that software project. So I just think that technology finance is, is is where it's at right now. And so that's why I wanted to write about it. Yeah, no, I t totally agree. I was just on the, the phone before this with a, a call with a potential LP for our new fund. And they were asking us about kind of the investment process in terms of making decisions. And I said, look, because we invested seed in Series A, I'm basically making a bet on the founder, right? It's not me having three reams of data on something. I am kind of looking at this person and saying, I believe that they can execute this particular thing for these reasons, or I don't, right? Um, but yeah, it just kind of inherently makes it more interesting because you're betting on people as opposed to, to numbers, um, and that's just it's more exciting. One of the things I was interested by at the beginning is that nothing you might learn in business school about how to value an asset really applies in venture capital, right? right. I mean, you know, normally you would discount uh, the cash flows of the equity or the bond or whatever it is you're buying. Well, there are no cash flows to discount when it's an early stage company which has no revenue. Um, you might look at you know, price to book. Well, there's no book value in a startup company either. So as you say, it's just you know, the intellectual puzzle of how you even begin to allocate capital in a world where you just have two-legged mammals who walk into your office with a dream. Uh, that's a fascinating starting point for a book as well. Yeah, absolutely. How much do you feel like your audience and your fans no tech in Silicon Valley already? And how much was it just a mystery to them that, that you're helping un unravel? I think the sweet spot, and this is something that, you know, writers for, you know, I used to work at The Economist, I worked at The Washington Post, um, 
you kind of come up against this all the time where you want to write something which the insiders find serious and accurate and even interesting and makes them look at it in a new way. But you want to bring along with you those who are not experts, who are maybe in the political world, who understand that, you know, technology finance is super important these days, but they didn't never really done a deep dive. I think my book could take anybody into that world and make it interesting in addition to being for the people who already know something about it. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I want to dive into the book itself a little bit. And one of the people that you really discuss a lot is Arthur Rock, who's one of the godfathers of venture capital. But I'm guessing that even the vast majority of listeners to this podcast uh, probably couldn't really tell you much about him. So who is Arthur Rock? Why is he important? And, and why did he interest you? So Arthur Rock was the uh, venture capitalist who financed, first of all, Fairchild Semiconductor, the kind of seminal early semiconductor company in Silicon Valley, went on to finance um, Intel, which actually grew out of Fairchild, later financed Apple, along the way did a couple of big deals that are less famous now because the names have been um, superseded, but you know, Teledyne at the time was a huge defense contractor. Um, and so what was fascinating is that he, Arthur Rock, kind of improvised the tools that it takes to do venture capital. He was one of the first guys who understood you should only ever buy equity. I mean, the idea of lending money to a startup makes no sense because if they're growing, <laughs> right? But that's what the government at the time, most venture uh, investors, there weren't very many, but those that did exist were taking loans from the government uh, and then having to finance these startups with debt capital. It made no sense, whatever. Anyway, Arthur Rock was one of the guys who figured out that that was crazy. Um, and he set up a fund in 1961 that multiplied the LP's capital by something like 22 times. And when that, um, when that news got out, he was all of a sudden a celebrity and everybody copied him. It was 1968. And by 1969, the amount of capital flowing into venture funds was, you know, way up. And it was the first boom in venture capital, kind of mini boom by today's standards, but still the first boom in, in, in the Valley for venture capital. And I think, you know, that's really what kickstarted the Valley. And to your point that many of our listeners today wouldn't have heard of Arthur Rock, that actually tells you something super interesting because the people that he financed, like, um, you know, uh, Gordon Moore and, and Bob Noyce, the, the founders of Intel, those people are super famous. Their biographies about them and, and all Moore that stuff. Moore has a law. Right. <laughs> right. Moore's law, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but I think it tells us something about how we've misunderstood the nature of innovation, that the person who financed Intel and then actually was the chairman of the board for, you know, a couple of decades is lost in history. And he's lost in history because we we underappreciate how much the investors who structure the uh, employee stock options, who often make the first few hires in the startup, who introduce the startup to its first customers, who provide guidance in terms of financial controls and stuff like that. These are actually super important players in making innovation happen. And one of my things I'm trying to do in my book is write venture capital back into the history of innovation and make people understand that 
if you want to have a startup cluster, if you want to copy Silicon Valley and do the same thing in Austin or Miami or wherever, you have to make sure that you've got a good venture capital sector as part of the mix. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Hugo just sent had me a note said no one remembers the A and R guys either for for music and uh, I guess since that's near and dear to Hugo's heart that's a good point um, I, a little bit of diversion then because you, you mentioned sort of the other cities trying to develop the ecosystem um, just from what you've seen who do you think is doing it well both in the U S and globally and, and who isn't well globally the most clear challenger to the U S is obviously now China yeah what's really fascinating about that is that. The reason China's digital economy uh, got going, and I document this, you know, there are great stories around this in my book, is that American venture capitalists showed up in China and brought the whole toolkit from Silicon Valley right. to China and just repeated it. It's nothing to do with, frankly, you know, the Chinese state um, having a far-seeing, brilliant plan for how to build up a tech sector. No. The Chinese government was trying to build a semiconductor sector around 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 about 2000 and totally failed. I mean, even today, they are struggling to establish a good semiconductor industry in China. But what worked was, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, Sina, Sohu, NetEase, all of these early consumer-facing internet companies, and all of them, 100% of them, had U.S. Uh, venture capital in there. They typically had Silicon Valley lawyers writing the deal documents. They had dispute settlement under New York law. They had an aspiration to go public on the NASDAQ in the US. So basically, the entire template was the same template that got uh, Silicon Valley started in the 60s and 70s. So a decade ago, when, when I started working in, in tech, it, it was a sort of glory days where if you said, oh, I'm working with a startup, people like, all they wanted to do was know more about it and, and tell you how great it was. Um, and, and the public sentiment has shifted a lot over the last decade, where now I think we're in, in the middle of a serious tech lash. You write in the introduction to the book that you had two goals. One is to examine the, the mindset of venture capital, and the other is to evaluate VC social impact. Um, do you think that this shift is because people understand the social impact and they're now judging it, or are they basically just taking their dislike for uh, Facebook or Amazon or sort of the mega companies that people usually don't like and then just extrapolating it to all tech? The one area where I think the tech lash uh, as directed at venture capital is justified is on diversity. Um, yep. uh, it is true that there are, you know, like of all the investing partners at Silicon Valley venture capital shops, only 3% are black, only, you know, less than 20% are women. Um, and that stuff is no good. When you're trying to invent the future for all of society, you better have a team that looks a bit more like society. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it's just not acceptable. So that's the, that's the one clear criticism. I think that in other respects, the attacks on venture capital are mostly um, confused. I particularly think that, you know, if you don't like big tech, then you ought to love small tech, right? The best antidote to the monopoly yes. power. Yes. Well, look, I'm usually cheering Elizabeth Warren's efforts on antitrust because I'm like, this will help the small, you know, the early stage companies that I invest in, right? They're, they're, it's almost an oppositional thing. Exactly. Totally. You want to break up the power of the monopolies, yes. uh, then you need upstart challengers to come in and take them on, and that's right. you know that's the most effective remedy. So, in in a weird way, even though 
the tech lash probably splashes onto earlier stage startups that really haven't had anything to do with it one way or the other, um, because Facebook is sort of the the easiest villain here to point to, makes everyone so angry, um, it actually, the tech lash will lead to their regulation, uh, maybe repealing Section 230, maybe you know new antitrust measures, whatever it is, um, that will actually enable more competition down the road. Yeah, I mean... I'm all for competition, uh, and I think you can get at it a few ways. You know, one is through regulatory restrictions on the big guys, uh, but the other is having a clear view that the small guys are to be encouraged. They're not to be attacked. So I get a bit depressed when you, know, you get a story like the Theranos trial, and it's viewed by some people not merely as the rightful you know, conviction of somebody who ran a fraudulent company that caused people damage. I'm all for enforcing the law. But it shouldn't be seen as, you know, the discrediting of venture capital because actually the people who funded Theranos were nearly all of them not venture capitalists. They were venture tourists. Yeah, you're Uh, right that. It was effectively, in some ways, Theranos was a validation of Sand Hill Road, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Because the pros, like this partnership MedVenture, which... Um, was pitched by Theranos, and Theranos came and asked for capital. MedVenture said, you know, sure, let's have a conversation. And they started asking technical questions about how the medical technology worked. And when Elizabeth Holmes couldn't answer, she just walked out of the room. That's how it's supposed to happen. You're supposed to have searching questions from the investors uh, to diligence the entrepreneur, and, um, and then you'll get less fraud. Uh, it's when the venture capital space becomes a sort of playground for rich people who don't know what they're doing, you know, that's where we get a fair Yeah, it's, where the, it's, it's when the dumb money gets involved. That's exactly right. After we have been hesitant to invest in cannabis deals, not because we don't think it's an interesting market, not because we don't support legalization of, of cannabis, but, you know, when you see all these family offices of individual rich people directly on the cap table of these companies, what that says to me is like, there's, there's a reason why this is happening. It probably means that we should stay away. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. I mean, that is a big problem, I think, generally in the tech space right now, that you've got some people who are thoughtful and they're trying to invest sensibly. Um, but if the cap table, maybe after they've invested, becomes full of, you know, big players who who write big checks and dilute the early guys, uh, the early guys are not going to have much influence. And you sort of saw that yeah. story play out with WeWork uh, and a little bit with Uber where you know the Saudi investment fund or whoever it is comes in and invests 3.5 billion in the case of Uber, uh, diluting Benchmark, the early investor, and making it very difficult for Benchmark to prevent Travis Kalanick from going off the rails. Yeah, I'm not sure. So having been there at the time when it all happened, um, you know, I, I think there was probably fault on both sides between Travis and, and Gurley. But but I think you're right in that when all of a sudden the Saudis and SoftBank are coming in. At these really different levels, you know, any early stage VC just seems insignificant by comparison. Right. Um, what would you say? I get asked all the time, and now that you've written this book, I suspect you're going to be asked all the time, also by young people, like, "How do I get into venture?" Because it's not a really clear path. As you mentioned, business schools don't even really teach the finance of it. Um, I teach a class at Columbia Business School about the politics and economics of disruption, and it's like the only thing that that there is for them about this. So. Um, well, based on what you all your research and what you wrote, what would your advice be? I think the classic routine is to uh, work in a startup, maybe do your own startup, 
if you can get experience what it's like to to be on the ground you know actually building a company um that's one piece of experience which i think is really valuable if you want to get into venture capital you know the other is you need some sort of technical angle where you're going to add value to the portfolio companies you invest in the angle could be that you understand coding it could be that you understand marketing it could be that you understand the finance side uh, or even the political side which i think is your angle mm-hmm. um, uh, and so there are different ways that you can make a case to an entrepreneur that you your capital is greener than the other guys yeah that, uh, that is literally the line that we use um, uh, and I think in a way, diversity is good right here. I mean, in some sense, taking a non-traditional way of getting into the deal, maybe saying, you know, I've met venture investors who maybe grew up in Asia and now they're in the Valley and their angle is, look, I know people in Indonesia and that's a big country that is really difficult to penetrate, but I can take your product and help you to set up in Indonesia when Masayoshi Son of SoftBank was getting started, he would say that about his connections in Japan and it really worked for him. So there are all kinds of angles you can have um, to make yourself valuable to a, um, a startup. Uh, but I think you need to think, you know, try to develop one. So one of the, you tell a good cautionary tale in the book that I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with, which is John Dorn and Kleiner Perkins, right? And and not even that long ago, John was seen as the absolute, like the Michael Jordan of uh, of, of Silicon Valley. Um, and, and then he he'd invested heavily in clean tech. It all kind of went bad. And and now he sort of no longer has that kind of status. Um, what do you think about his decision? And then you tell a good story in the book about it. Tell the story about why he chose to uh, get involved in clean tech. And then ultimately, um, how do you evaluate the outcome here for him, given that he seems like he tried to do the right thing, but but executed it a bit poorly on behalf of his LPs? Well, John Doe was always a fascinating sort of high risk individual. Um, uh, you know, right from the start. And and if you look at his career before he became, you know, super famous because he did Netscape and Amazon and, and Google, um, you know, he, he did this company, Go Computers, which was a total disaster. And I tell that story. And it's it's a story both in way of John's brilliance because he could raise money like nobody else. He just had that messianic magnetism. Um, you know, he had the emotional energy of, of a, you know, the emotional power of a priest and the energy of a racehorse was how one entrepreneur put it. Um, but he could also mess up because he had so much persuasive power to raise money that he could sort of raise money almost for anything, including something that should never have had money for raise for it. So he was capable in kind of, of being both great and risky. Um, and I think what you saw in the 2000s with cleantech was an example of that. He wasn't necessarily wrong about clean tech. He was early, but that's the same as being wrong sometimes. Uh, and so he he lost a lot of money on, or at least he he failed to make money on on the early clean tech deals. Of course, clean tech now has come back, uh, and a lot of battery um, plays and yeah. other software related kind of power management plays are doing very well. Um, but in the 2000s, when he did this, he got it wrong. And I think it was just an example where, because he had so much influence within his own partnership. Um, Nobody was willing to challenge him or even just rein him in a little bit. 
Um, and I think there, the departure of Vinod Kosler, who had been his intellectual equal within Kleiner Perkins for a long time, but then left to set up his own shop around about 2003 or four, as I remember. I think that took away kind of a balancing factor within the partnership. And then various other people left uh, from the old Kleiner Perkins who had maybe been like the moral glue, the people who had kind of reined John in when he was going too far over his skis. And once you had that happen, um, you know, there was John Doerr and there was a bunch of people who couldn't stand up to him. Yeah. And then he just went way too far. And he did this, by the way, you know, partly about clean tech, but also he had some good ideas. Um, like, you know, not only did he want to save environment, he wanted to do something about diversity. And he began to hire women, but he didn't follow through as a manager and create a climate that would prevent um, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination. Right. He wound up with a harassment suit. Yeah, uh, so uh, I think the, 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 the famous lawsuit. Yeah, yeah, the Ellen Power lawsuit. That's right. Yeah. So it was just like, you know, he's a brilliant guy. Um, uh, he made some amazing deals in his time. Um, but, you know, a partnership can have the upside that it is a collective of people who usefully put each other through a questioning process, who can be checks, who can be balances, who can kind of ask the hard questions of their own partners. And I think that's what Kleiner left, uh, missed. You know, it it is a team sport in the end. It seems a little bit like, you know, while a lot of his intentions were, were noble and, and, and the right thing to do, it's almost like he was early on the ESG concept, right? Which is, um, we, we're looking at this from a double bottom line perspective. We want to have returns that are good, but we also want to have a very clear impact that's positive on society in, in whatever area that they're in. And we're willing to accept lower returns uh, to, to have this kind of impact. Um, you know, that's not the mentality in venture, right? Whenever, whenever I talk to a European LP and they kind of ask me about ESG, I'm very clear of like, look, my goal is to make as much money as I possibly can for my investors. I personally give away about 80% of the money that I make. I'm going to continue to do so. That's how I have an impact in society. Um, but I don't really believe in trying to blend the two. Um, do you think that venture is headed in that direction? Or do you think John is sort of the cautionary tale that keeps it away? And, and what do you think the right answer is? I mean, I think the right answer is sort of your answer, um, to be honest. I mean, you know, it's impressive when you go to Sequoia, uh, to their, you know, Menlo office, um, and the conference rooms are named after their limited partners, which tend to yeah. be various endowments, either for universities or the Ford Foundation or what have you. So ultimately, a, a big chunk of their profits do flow back to charitable purposes, which is mm -hmm. great, and I think makes them feel good about their work. Um, but, you know, they're out to make as much money as they possibly can. Um, and so I think you can marry the philanthropic goal, the society, uh, the kind of social conscience with uh, red tooth capitalism pretty effectively if you do it on that model. Now, you know, having said that, I think ESG is a powerful force in society. I don't think any sector will totally uh, escape it. Um, I just hope that the way those two goals can be married is more along the lines of what you're saying and what Sequoia does than, than the alternative. Yeah, me too. Um, along those same lines a little bit is you, you have a chapter in the book that's effectively about kind of the cowboy entrepreneur, right? Travis, Adam Newman, even Zuckerberger early on. Uh, I, Elizabeth Theranos is sort of a different category because it was just fraud. But um, do you think, A, that that 
personality type has now been discredited in the Valley? And if so, more importantly, B, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because I'm not sure it's a good thing. Look, I think that the kind of Travis Kalanick personality type is a good thing. Um, you're trying to do a startup. Um, you're up against all these incumbent companies, which probably have connections um, to, you know, regulators and what have you. And breaking into that market is just like super difficult. And if you're not flat out determined and, you know, willing to, you know, break a couple of doors down on the way, uh, I, I don't think the startup has much of a chance, frankly. And you've got to do it in a legal way. Uh, you, of course, you should, you know, you're building a company for the long term, so you shouldn't go overboard. But I think, you know, determination is definitely a good thing. Now, the problem with, in my telling of the story, the problem with Uber is not necessarily how Travis Kalanick was at the beginning. It's like how he became later on. Because what happens is you begin with somebody who is super determined you can't be an entrepreneur without having a lot of belief in yourself. But then once you reach unicorn status, that belief can overshoot and you start to think that, you know, you can really do no wrong. And unless you have a really well-adjusted character, which some of these guys do, I mean, I look at some other unicorn founders who I've gotten to know a little bit, and I think they are just amazing individuals and I, I would trust them with my investment any day of the week. Um, but, you know, a lot of people, when they get to that level of success, are going to just not question themselves as much as they should do. And that's where a powerful board matters. That's where giving the founder super voting shares is probably a mistake. And I think, you know, if you want an example of a good mixture right here, I would say that Mark Zuckerberg is it. And he's in one part a genius who's built an amazing company. Um, and continues to push himself to innovate. So the pivot to rebranding himself meta recently is, you know, a pretty gutsy move, uh, and I applaud him for that. But at the same time, I think he hasn't always had the check and the balance on his instincts that would have saved him a huge amount of um, public relations trouble and that caused him now to be kind of viewed in, in the same category as Big Tobacco. So, you know... I think he is an illustration of how the imperial founder, the cult of the founder, the super voting shares for founders, all of that stuff can go too far. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, one of the things that I kind of took away from the book is that, look, when things are good in venture, they're really good and everyone's returns look incredible. But invariably, things do turn bad. That's just how markets work. Um, we've got a lot of people, and maybe even me included in a way, in this market who have never really experienced uh, a significant down cycle. And we're seeing now Series A valuations regularly topping, you know, $100 million, which is sort of crazy in a way. Um, how do you see this all ending up? I think the lesson of the late 1990s, which of course led to the, the NASDAQ crash in 2000, is that it's almost impossible for the venture ecosystem to self-correct. The correction has to come from the stock market. Uh, if valuations for exits are crazy high, it makes sense if you're the private investor coming before that to pay a crazy high price to get into a deal because you can exit at a very high price and still make a profit. So you'd be right. dumb not to do it. Yep. And in 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 the you know, there's an important thing about the culture of private investing where 
A, you cannot go short, so you can't express a bearish opinion. B, um, it's very much a network game where you are in, you know, you're syndicating into each other's deals. Somebody does the A round, you know, they might introduce somebody else to do the B round to lead it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want that introduction, so you're not going to be bad mouthing the person who's done the A round. Um, somebody else might be called upon to lead the B round, but you want to have a piece of it. So you want to have a good relationship with the leader so that you know you get let into the deal and then maybe you'll pay back that favor later. This is a very much a, a networky, um, clubby culture. And that is not a culture where it pays to stand up and say, guys, the party should be finished yesterday. <laughs> you know, take the punch bowl away. So, you know, venture cannot self-correct. What can work is if the the public markets um, go down. And I think, you know, as we see the Fed starting to wake up a little bit to the need to tighten, um, you know, that correction may well come. And uh, 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 that's where that's where it'll come totally. from. I mean, we're seeing that now that you know companies go public and then they're they're trading. You know, often the big tech companies b- below the initial strike price because you know the valuations were so high. Um, look to your point, as an early stage investor, it all works, right? Which is if everyone wants to keep marking up my deals over and over again, whether or not uh, it makes any sense, I'm happy to have it. And you know, once there's a liquidity event, we're going to do pretty well, even if the final outcome is is not at the height. Um, but if you're a growth equity investor, uh, I, I don't even understand how you're making money in this climate. So is, is that where you think sort of the correction and realization sets in first? Yes, because growth equity investors, you know, can and do lose money, it's just as you describe right now. You know, the early stage people may see the valuation go to some crazy peak in Series F or Series G. And then the IPO will see the shares lose money. But if you came in early enough, that's all fine. If you came in in Series G, you lose money. (laughs) Um, And so I think both on the valuation side that the growth investors uh, need to be careful right now because of the way the monetary policy cycle is turning. Uh, But also I think, and I wish that they would pay more attention to governance because I do think that's where, um, you know, in normal investing, either you're a public market investor where you don't like what the management of a company is doing, so you can just sell the stock or even go short. And that that works. That's fine. Or if you're a private market investor, um, you know, you have governance rights and you can go in and tell the leadership of the management to do something differently because you've got ownership rights. But if you don't have ownership rights because you know, the growth equity guys have come in and diluted it and they've allowed the founder to have super voting rights, so super voting shares and all that, you know, then there's no governance. And and I think that's that's where the whole machine becomes pretty scary. Last question. So Europe does not make that much of an appearance in, in your book. And you have all these, you know, sophisticated economies that you would think would be able to do the same kind of stuff that the U.S. is doing and China is now doing. And yet it doesn't seem to really have a little bit in Germany, a little bit in London, but really not that much. Why is that? So that's a, a great question. I've actually just gone on my computer screen right now, uh, uh, an essay I'm writing um, about Europe, uh, which kind of has material that's not in the book. Um, but I'm actually quite bullish that Europe is sort of uh, reaching an inflection point where there really will be a serious tech ecosystem. Uh, One of the reasons I think that is that important Silicon Valley venture partnerships are showing up in Europe and setting up Mm -hmm. offices. So we just had um, 
you know, Sequoia do that. We've had Lightspeed do that. Index Ventures has been here for a while. Axel, I say here because I'm speaking to you from London. Uh, Axel has been here for a while. Um, so, you know, once you start to get that sophisticated capital coming in, that's a great sign. And the fact is that, you know, there are more coders in Europe than there are in the United States. Uh, there are more STEM graduates, uh, science, technology, engineering, math uh, in Europe than there are in the United States. There is pretty good technical education in Europe. And once you start to get the culture of, you know, hey, I don't have to work for a big company. I could start my own company with my engineering skills because there's a venture capitalist from Sequoia or Excel who's willing to back me and willing to kind of show me how to do it. Um, then I think this ecosystem will take off. You're already seeing companies like Spotify come out of Sweden and have fantastic exits. Uh, and if you look at the number of unicorns, it's up like, you know, uh, 5x uh, in the last few years. And, and I think it'll just continue to grow. There we go. Sebastian Malaby, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the book is called The Power Law of Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. If you enjoyed this podcast, you're going to love the book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Great to have you. Uh, great to have this conversation. Absolutely.